Let's open the Word of God, please, to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, as we continue the saga of the life of Joseph, and we're going to see two wisdom principles this morning from this passage. Number one, don't totalize yourself or others. What in the heck does that mean? Totalizing is when you take one event, one decision, one action, one choice, or one characteristic of a person or yourself, and you see them, you relate to them only on the basis of that one event, one choice, one characteristic, one action. Uh, Typically, it's uh, something really bad, or it might be something really good. So we're going to see that Joseph doesn't do that. I think many people in Joseph's position today, where 22 years after they sold him into slavery, he's got total power over them, and they don't see it coming. They don't know he's the brother they sold down the river. I think at the very least, the most spiritual person in this room might be tempted to say, hey, you morons, why in the heck did you sell me into slavery thinking they were going to kill me and work me to death? And that was for... 22 years ago, why don't we put you into maybe solitary confinement for maybe 22 months and see how you like it, how you like them apples kind of thing. Joseph doesn't do that. He's He knows God's in the character building, people changing business, and he tests his brothers to make sure they've changed, and they had changed. So don't totalize yourself or others. Um, secondly, don't totally trust yourself or others. You know, um, when people decide they want to get physically fit, a lot of times they'll get a personal trainer or at least a walking buddy. And why do you do that? Because you can't trust yourself after the first couple of days and the soreness hits to keep walking or keep exercising or something like that. Uh, let's not totalize ourselves or others. God can and will change us uh, and change other people. But let's not totally trust ourselves or other people either. 1 Corinthians 10 says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we're going to look at those two principles. Joseph holds those in balance, and um, by God's grace, maybe we can too. Let's pray before we dive into this uh, Mother's Day Bible feast. I love this chapter, Genesis 42. But let's pray for our teachability, our troops, peace officers, firefighters, and... uh, Let's see. Steve, would you pray for us in that direction? Thank you, Steve. We're happy to have our missionaries to medical school, Ashley and Tyler, here today. And they've got some board tests coming up in a couple weeks. So uh, the grind never stops for those in the medical field. I know Angel's too humble to tell you she made all A's this last semester in nursing school. But I kind of trained her how to be a good college student before she went to nursing school. And that's, that's always helpful. Um, glad the doctors are here because we've got an abstract thought warmer upper that centers on doctors and medical issues. Uh, Tyler, you're going to have patients like this. Uh, your patient sitting on the exam table there, and there you are, and the patient announces, I already diagnosed myself on the Internet. I'm only here for a second opinion. <laughs> but, boy, that's an expensive visit, isn't it? Okay, here's a doctor talking to a patient in the hospital. You caught a virus from your computer, and we had to erase your brain. Hope you have a backup copy. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, this is a, a married couple about to eat this gigantic fish. 
And the wife says, see, the husband doesn't understand how to interpret the doctor. She says, when the doctor told you to eat more fish, what he meant was eat fish more often, not more. I don't mind explaining them. See, a big, big picture there. You don't want to eat all that in one sitting. That's not good for your health. All right, back to why we're here. Joseph's story. The Joseph story is uh, one of the biggest panoramas of somebody's life, other than David and the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, we know we know more about Joseph than anybody else in the Scripture. And the overall import of the story, I think, is it's illustrating the redeeming power of perseverance. What's perseverance? It's a holy hanging in there. It's keep on trusting the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be uh, any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. It's the redeeming power of perseverance, dealing with adversity tests, and forgiveness when you've got power over them and you could be bitter and you could inflict a lot of damage in believers who fully live out their faith under the sovereignty of God, who really believe in and trust in the providence of God. Now, the big biblical context for this story is that Joseph is part of the family through which God's going to bring the Savior. The first Christmas doesn't happen if you don't have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, 2000 BC and all that working out. Now the Bible's a big book. It's only got two parts though. And we're looking at Old Testament story through a New Testament lens. What's the major premise the Old Testament teaches us from Genesis to Malachi? I mean Malachi. Everybody di- sins, everybody dies. What's the promise? God's going to send the lamb, right? So these are part of the human links through which that's going to happen. Now we live on this side of the equation. And we're looking back at the provided Savior. And I think the big premise of the New Testament is Jesus of Nazareth is the one the Old Testament promised would come as a lamb, would come back as a lion, and he's coming back. So that's the big picture. And I think it's helpful to realize that uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are Old Testament believers. What does that mean? When did they live? Before the first coming of Christ. How were Old Testament people saved? They were saved by grace through faith. In the promised Savior, how are New Testament folks saved? By grace through faith directed toward the provided, or to, I should say provided. I misspelled provided there. Whoops. Uh, that's what I meant. But, you know, the key, uh, he's an Old Testament believer, and we see him go through the adversity tests uh, that went through last chapter. Now we're going to see him in control of, of all of Egypt just under the Pharaoh. So it's a big prosperity test. The big key is, that the Lord was continually with Joseph. Big P is more important than big M's. What does that mean? The providence of God, slowly but surely, invisibly, through all the little details that you have to deal with on a daily basis, God is working all things together for the good, which is to shape our character, not just to make us rich and famous, as opposed to the big miracles. You don't see the opening up of the Nile here. There's no opening up of the Nile. Did God open up the Nile and impress the brothers? Yeah, he could do that. He didn't do that. And typically, he doesn't do a lot of that. He does it when he needs to. But he's always at work all around us. You just have to trust it. Now, to put chapter 42 into context, back at the beginning of the story, we saw Joseph go from favorite son to foreign slave. How did he become a foreign slave? His brothers threw him in a pit. We're just deciding what to do with them. Some slave traders happen to come by, and they sell him, uh, assuming that the Egyptians will work him to death probably in a salt mine, and they don't want him to prosper nor his dreams about them bowing down to the him, him to come true. Chapter 38 is like a parenthesis where we compare Joseph's righteous character 
to Judah's. That should say Judah, not Judas's. Whoops, man. I got, somebody's got to proofread these uh, slides. Uh, Judah's unrighteousness. Chapter 37. Yeah, he's sold into slavery, but guess what? By a, a miracle, a providential miracle, rather than working in a salt mine, he's got an inside job, no heavy lifting. He's working for a big shot in the Egyptian government, and he's, Joseph's got, every, you know, he's got it all together so much, he ends up being basically his administrative assistant. So he's in charge of this Potiphar's whole household, but then something bad happens. Potiphar's wife wants to seduce him, tries multiple times, and finally she accuses him falsely of attempted sexual assault. So he ends up in the jailhouse. So he goes from being over Potiphar's house to being in a jailhouse, but he quickly makes himself up to the point where the head jailer sees Joseph as trustworthy enough to basically run the prison for him, to kind of do all the, the work under him. So he goes from slave to supervisor over Potiphar's house, from accused sexual criminal to supervisor over the jailhouse. What happens in chapter 40? Makes two new friends, two people from the cabinet of the pharaoh. The uh, butler and the baker are uh, get on the wrong side of the pharaoh, end up in prison. Joseph meets them. They have dreams. They're concerned are significant, uh, convinced are significant. He interprets the dreams for them. They're, they're fulfilled. Uh, he tells the, the butler, hey, uh, when you get reassigned back to the cabinet and get out of here in three days, be sure and put a good word in for me. So what happens? So what happens? He forgets for two years. So between that space between chapter 40 and 41, hey, Connor, you see that space right here? I got this one right on my slide. See that space right there? That's like maybe, what, an inch and a half distance? You know, in time, that's two years. Well, it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. I don't think Joseph panics. I just think he's saying, you know what? I can't totalize anything about that guy, but I can't totally trust him either. But you know what? God will over, the sovereignty of God will override the unfaithfulness of people. It will, you know, which doesn't justify their unfaithfulness, their forgetfulness, their lies, their slander, whatever it is. But God's more powerful than any other force you got to deal with. So we see, uh, last week, finally, when the Pharaoh has a dream, and he wants it interpreted. Suddenly his butler, who had been in prison with Joseph two years before, said, hey, I knew a guy in prison. Remember that time two years ago when he sent me to prison for a short period of time? I met a guy who could interpret dreams. Maybe he can help you. So they pulled Joseph out. Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dream and the upshot of the dreams. He had two dreams that had the same meaning. There's going to be seven years of bumper crops followed by seven years of famine when nobody in the region is going to be able to grow anything. So he says, after interpreting it, says, if I were you, I would start a major 20% saving of food the next seven years so that we and the region can survive. And he does such a nice job describing that. The Pharaoh says, we're not going to find anybody better than this guy to do this. Let's just hire him. We're going to kind of give him a blanket pardon for his legal issues and put him in charge. And so Joseph is the prime minister. That's where we left it off last week. And now we're going to see uh, from tested by events the big brothers brought his way to him testing his big brothers. Now we emphasized last week there are only two kind of basic tests that you're going to have to, the Mormons are going to have to face or the strangers are going to have to face. It seems strange to call them strange, you know, to me. Uh, the first Wednesday night when they visited, they plopped down at prayer meeting. We don't get a lot of visitors on prayer meeting. And I walked up to them and of course Meg is just a beautiful, radiant Christian lady and she's smiling and Doug looks up at me. No words have been exchanged yet. And he says, we're strange. 
Well, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I picked, I, he said, no, Doug Strange and Meg Strange, okay. Um, you know what? Dustin's strategy during the bad days ought to be the same strategy as during the good days. Keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, right? Adversity tests tend to tempt, tempt us into what I call Operation Doubt, Pout, and Drop Out. And I've been there a few times, and I've seen people uh, punt to that, but eventually they come back. The prosperity test may be even more difficult for a lot of us. This is Operation Puff Up and Drift Away. I don't really need God except when I die now because I've got my uh, IRAs in fine shape and i got the promotion and I'm a big shot now. And so I, they slowly drift away, and rather than being in the center of the person's pie chart, Christ kind of gets a kind of a tenth level of priority. It's not good, but Joseph is successful in all those kind of tests, and we're going to see him now for the rest of this story in prosperity uh, status, uh, dealing with prosperity uh, issues. Uh, chapter breaks down like this. First, Joseph's ten older brothers go to Egypt to buy food, and they unknowingly interact with their brother Joseph 22 years after they had sold him into slavery. And then verses 6 through 17, the 10 older brothers interact with him, but don't rec- but they don't recognize who he is. He knows who they are, but they can't tell who he is. He was 17 years old the last time they saw him. You can change a lot, plus he's got no facial hair, because the Egyptians didn't do that. He's got the Egyptian garb on, and uh, he speaks Egyptian, not Hebrew. They're not looking for him. They assume he's dead. Uh, they have no inkling he's looking at him. And that's a that's a pretty cool place to be. Uh, Back when I used to actually make myself play golf occasionally, I've told you the stories, but, you know, American men, when you, when you go to golf course with your son and they need to put two more people in your group so they can maximize how much money they're going to make on the golf course by people, by people playing in foursomes. Um, you know, American men, when they just first meet each other playing golf or something, after a couple of holes, when you got a, a stop, you on a tee waiting for, hit a tee shot because there's people on the green, uh, they'll say, what do you do? Meaning, what do you do for a living? That's, that's the way we kind of describe ourselves. And uh, when American men find out they're playing golf with a preacher, it's not always a happy thing for them. <laughs> um, many times, I, you almost hate to have to tell them you're a preacher, you know. And I remember one time, uh, Brad, I think Brad was actually there. We were playing in like uh, the hospital scrambled or something, and they, they paired Brad and I, Brad Blystone, uh, the two Brads, brothers from different mothers, Talking about brothers from different mothers, you've heard that expression. The 12 sons of Jacob are brothers from different mothers. we got four mothers working there. But anyway, back to the golf course. Uh, I just had to say that before I forgot, you know. Uh, yeah, Brad, you remember this. We, we played like, they, they kind of put us together real quick, and the horn went off, and shotgun tee off, so you're teeing off on all the different tees, all the groups. So we played like four or five holes. And we hadn't had a chance to stop and say, hey, what do you do for a living? But I knew that was coming. And then this one guy that we were playing with, he just threw his golf club down after I'd put it out. And he said, you've got to be a preacher. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, nobody could play as bad as you do and not cuss about it unless he was a preacher. <laughs> so, you know, they eventually find out. But it is kind of fun before, especially it's usually the other way around. They're cussing up a storm. They don't know who you are yet. And you know, especially, you know, when they eventually ask you, now in our culture, they say, who cares? You know, if you don't like it tough, but in the old days, they kind of swallowed their gum and they go, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't realize you were, you know, a professional Christian kind of stuff. So I've been in that situation where they don't know who I am. That's kind of fun. But the older brothers see, but don't see Joseph. They see him, but they don't know who it is. Joseph gives them a character test. He's going to have kind of an elaborate character test because he wants to make sure they haven't whacked dad 
or his younger brother. They whacked him. They were happy to sell into slavery knowing he'd be worked to death, but that didn't happen. Why? Because of their virtue? Because of the providence of God. That's why, right? And then we're going to see nine of the ten brothers go back home with food. They leave Simeon behind for reasons we'll talk about, and dad freaks out, okay? So let's look at this. Look at verses 1 through 5. Joseph's ten older brothers, 22 years after they've sold him into slavery, uh, go down to Egypt and unknowingly bump into their brother. Now, Jacob saw, that's the dad, that there was grain in Egypt. We're in the second year, at least according to Jewish tradition, this is the second year of the famine. Remember, nine years before this, Joseph had interpreted the dream. He's 30 years old and seven years of bumper crops and then seven years of bad crops. And so they wrote out the first year of the famine, but this is the second year of the famine according to Jewish tradition. Now Jacob, the father back in the promised land, saw, what, on cable TV? We'll talk about that. Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt and nobody else had any. And he said to his sons, his ten oldest sons, why are you staring at one another? Get off your hands and get to work. I mean, come up with a plan. He's, he's, he's saying, we need a plan here, and there is food in Egypt. I know it's dangerous. I know bad things happen on these trips, but we're going to have to go do it. And he said, behold, I have heard. Okay, that's got to be a Bible contradiction, right? Jacob saw, hey, he didn't have direct TV. He didn't see anything. And he, now he says he heard, which is right. To hear or see in that context means to become aware of. That's all that means. Okay, He's not using cable television, right? And we understand that. But he had heard, the word out on the street was, there's grain in Egypt. Why is there grain in Egypt? Because nine years before, Joseph had interpreted the dream and they had been saving 20% of their food for seven years. That's why. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we will not, so we may live and not die, starve to death. Then, ten brothers of Joseph, uh-oh, aren't there eleven? Is that a contradiction? No, just keep reading. Most Bible contradictions are answered in the next verse. Then ten brothers of Joseph, that is the shorthand, the ones that sold him into slavery 22 years before, that's what he's saying there, all right, went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob, the dad, did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin. Moses knows those 12 sons here and that Joseph and Benjamin are part of the deal, but he's just describing what happened. Dad sends the, the 10 older ones. He didn't allow Joseph's little brother Benjamin to go with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. Last time I kind of trusted these ten with one of my sons, he didn't come back. You know, I think in the back of his mind he's scarred by that. I think I don't think he has any inclination they killed him or sold him into slavery, but they're thinking maybe they're kind of careless, self-obsessed. They won't keep an eye on the younger guy. Something bad might happen. I'm just not going to take that risk. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain there in Egypt among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. And this was this a seven-year famine, which was a regional, not just an Egyptian event, okay? So now we got the 12 brothers going to Egypt. Looked at verse uh, 6 and following. The 10 brothers interact with Joseph, but they don't recognize him. And this is delicious, man. This is beautiful. you got to picture this. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. You already know that from the last chapter. Uh, he was the one who sold food, who was in charge of the program that distributed distributed food to the people of Egypt, and they even had enough they could sell it to foreigners. He was the one who sold all of the food uh, to the people of the land. That's a general statement. Then it says, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces on the ground. 
That's called literary contraction. He's giving a general statement. Remember, he's in charge of the food distribution program. The guys come and eventually bump into him and interact with him. What happens between those two statements, I don't know. Uh, is it possible Joseph, realizing the whole region's affected Deborah, had told some of his underlings, he's not, Joseph's too important to deal with everybody who comes in for food, even the foreigners, but he may have set up a program hoping his brothers would come, saying, hey, if you see 10 guys as part of a group with facial hair from Canaan, uh, you know, and uh, their last name is whatever their last name was, we don't know what their last name was, but uh, uh, make sure I process them. Something like that. Maybe he did that. We can ask him in heaven. Or maybe just in the providence of God. Joseph, who's kind of supervised the whole thing, and he may be in an office working on a spreadsheet most of the day, just happens to see this group come in, and he knows who they are. And so uh, God is sovereignly, sovereignly making all this happen. And Moses, who's writing this letter, is not trying to describe every little detail. But they interact. They're coming for food. Joseph's in charge of the food. He's going to interact with them, right? So pretty cool. Verse 7, when Joseph saw his brothers, he immediately knew who they were. Okay, he recognized them. But when it says he disguised himself, the Hebrew isn't like that malicious. It's more like he kept them from recognizing him. He didn't immediately say, hey guys, about time you showed up, how you feeling? You thought you killed me, right? You know, my temp- that'd be my temptation. As soon as I saw him, let him have it, you know. Get a little revenge, make them, I wouldn't kill them or anything, but I just make them feel the pain a little bit, right? He doesn't do that. He's thinking, hey, God's in this character changing business. I want to see if, number one, I want to make sure my younger brother is okay, Benjamin. They didn't do to him what they did to me. I want to make sure they haven't whacked dad, right? So he's, he's in control here, but he's in a, an amazing situation here, right? So he knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And he speaks to them harshly as opposed to saying, hey, guys, welcome to Egypt, or I knew you'd come back and you're going to get it this time. He just kind of business as usual. And he said to them, where have you come from? Now, you're not supposed to end uh, sentences with a preposition, but anyway. Uh, and they said, in Hebrew is okay, uh, from the land of Canaan to buy food. That's why we're here. But Joseph had recognized his brothers. Is Moses making it a point, Brad, to make sure you he knows who they are, but they don't know who he is? Okay, you, you got to see that. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Now, real places, real people, real events. The boys are from the promised land, specifically they're living near Hebron in uh, southern Israel. They're going to the um, Nile River Valley. And one reason they didn't recognize him was he was just a 17-year-old kid last time they saw him. Okay, uh, That's 22 years later. And he looks like that. I mean, this is not a photograph, but if these are the guys, he looks more like that. Okay, and he's got some really good abs. And these guys, you know, they don't—they're kind of out of shape. They got the, the the facial hair going, as we saw last week. The Egyptians didn't like that. There's nothing wrong with it, but they didn't like it. Plus, the big thing is, it's 22 years later. It's just a long time ago. Um, yeah, I mean, we 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 left him last week. Uh, he was 17 when they sold him into slavery. Uh, 13 years later, uh, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He's 30 years old, becomes the prime minister. He says, like, right now this famine is going to be starting. So that's seven years after that, and then two years into the famine. So he's 39 years old now. Last time they saw him, he was uh, 17. You change a lot. Um, my, my kids su- uh, surprised Debbie and I at our 35th wedding anniversary, and we're going to have our 46th in July. If, if I survive that long, 
Um, so that was a long time ago now. But uh, our kids, both sets of kids came and visited that weekend. And um, they wanted to, on Sunday after church, they wanted to put a blindfold on us and drive us to some special thing. And I thought they were just going to take me to Golden Corral or something. Um, and they didn't even say why. This was like a week or two before the anniversary. And we came to church, and the tables were all out, and all our friends from church were here, and some some of our friends, some dear friends that live in North Texas, were in the back of this room. And I would I would give my right arm for Don Jackson. He, he's a he's a dear dear friend, but we don't see each other a lot. And it, when I first looked across the room, I'm still kind of disoriented when they un- because they're why you don't do that for a 35th year. I mean, I could say a round number, maybe 40 or 50, they do something like that. But I that was I don't get surprised often, but I was totally surprised and was so thrilled and honored by that whole thing. Debbie and I both were. Some of you were there. But uh, yeah, I remember once I kind of got my sense, took the blindfold off and kind of got oriented, I'm looking around the room seeing everybody and said, man, this is great. And then they were sitting right in this corner, Don and Carolyn Jackson. I hadn't seen them in like 10 or 15 years. And I I did not recognize them. But when I looked over there, they were so, they were so happy to see me. And I thought, hey, they know who we are. You know, I wonder who that is. And then it suddenly hit me. And I said, Lord, thank you, because that, that would have been so embarrassing of this guy who literally is probably one of the best friends I've ever had. Uh, I didn't recognize him, but he changed enough that I didn't know it was, and that was just 10 or 15 years. This is 22 years later from 17, uh, 39. You, you change a lot, and especially when you, you don't look like the last time they saw him. He looks like that. So there's no way they're going to see that coming. Now, by the way, 22 years in Egypt for Joseph at this point, which means... Long time no see. The reason they don't, they don't recognize him is they just assume he's dead. They've worked him to death. They sold him in slavery, the Egyptians. And now they have no idea. They're not looking for him. They don't recognize him at all. But Joseph recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams. We'll think about the first one here in a minute, which he had about them 22 years before and how they hated and conspired to kill him back 22 years before. Go back to chapter 37. Of Genesis is the first chapter in the Joseph story. Let's look at this first dream he had. Verse 5, chapter 37, verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. This is a revelatory dream from God. Um, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. They already hated him for his, for his multicolored uh, letter jacket. And he said to them, please listen to this dream I've, I've had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up. And stood, stood straight up. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to mine. Isn't that great? Then his brothers said, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you, you're the 11th on the pecking order, man, going to rule over us? So they hated him even more and ended up selling him to slavery. Now go back to chapter 42, verse 8. He recognized them. They didn't recognize him. Verse 9, he remembered the dream. Wow. 22 years later, God hadn't forgotten the dream. God made it happen, literally, right? Uh, but watch, he says to them, you are spies. He's, he's going to test their character. Are they going to sell one another out like they sold him down the river? How are they going to react to this? Uh, you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're just here to, to buy food and survive this famine. Uh, we're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants are not spies. Now, they're not that honest, but, you know, sometimes, you know, you kind of uh, label things. Uh, why would they say we're all sons of one man? Yeah, I think the reason they're saying that is if we were on a spy mission, whoever was in charge of us wouldn't send ten brothers because when you're a spy, you've got a real chance you're not going to come home. 
They probably had one person from different families. I think there's a reason they stress that. But what Joseph's trying to find out from them at this point is, is dad still alive and have you guys killed Benjamin or sold Benjamin into slavery? He's, he's trying to, but he can't say, hey, you've got a younger brother, right? Isn't his name Benjamin? Uh, how, how, you guys nice to him now? He can't do that. He's got to do it indirectly. So he's very, being very wise here and hoping for the best, hoping maybe they're changed. And in fact, they are. So he says, no, don't buy it. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And he says, no, we're 12 brothers, all uh, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. See the irony of that? They're looking at the guy they don't think's alive. See, they're assuming he's dead. I mean, he's, he's dead. There's no reason for them to think it's him. He didn't look like him. And uh, he didn't even speak Hebrew. They're speaking through translator, we're, we're told later. Um, now, by the way, it says one is no longer alive. They're talking about Joseph there. That's not correct, right, Sidney? I mean, Joseph's alive, right? Now, hold on. I thought everything in the Bible was true. What's the deal? Isn't everything in the Bible true? That's not what you want to say because that's not correct. Uh, can God do anything? No. God can't do anything. He can't lie, die, stop being God. I mean, omnipotence means there's no finite limit on God's power. The inerrancy of Scripture doesn't mean everything in the Bible is true. It means everything the Bible affirms is true. What are they affirming here? They're affirming their assumption he's dead. Is that what they said? That's what they said. Is he dead? I guess not. He's talking to him, so he must be alive, right? But he's wanting to know, is dad still alive? And is there the youngest brother still alive? And by interacting with them, he's gotten that information. Just a brilliant, they ought to put Joseph on the homicide squad to get confessions out of people. He's that good. Look at verse 14. Joseph said to them, uh, is as I said to you, your spies. He just keeps the pressure on. How are they going to react now? Are they Are going to sell each other down the river uh, like they sold him? By this you'll be tested. So we're testing them here. Uh, by the life of Pharaoh, that's, that's as strong as you can base it on based on that culture. Uh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest, bro- youngest brother, the one you just referred to, comes here. Why is he so in- why, why is he so interested in actually seeing Benjamin? Talks cheap, you know. They may be uh, trying to portray themselves as sympathetic characters, and they may have whacked Benjamin. They, he wants to make sure Benjamin's alive and well, so he's going to see that with his own eyes. Trust but verify. Okay, don't totalize, but don't totally trust anybody because sometimes they lie to themselves and we lie to ourselves. Uh, send one of you that he may go get your brother while the rest of you guys remain confined here uh, in Egypt that your words may be tested, that you're one big happy family, your father's alive, your younger brother's still back at home and see if there's truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies and that's capital punishment. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, what's that about? I don't think there's a vindictive motive here at all. I think he's testing them. What are they going to do? Okay, He's telling them something worse than he really has in mind. We're going to keep all of you guys here, but want to go back and bring the brother back, and then we'll go from there. He ends up only uh, uh, keeping one, but I think he wants them to think, okay, uh, only one of us is going to stay, uh, and are they going to, like, it's like Survivor. You ever watch the show Survivor, you know? At the end of every episode, they vote off one person from the island, you know? He's seeing if they're going to play Survivor, you know? They vote one person off the island, whatever, because they think only one's going to go back. So he's he's giving them this character test. What's going to happen? Let's find out. Look at verse 18. Um, 
Now Joseph said to them on the third day, by the way, he says you're going to be in prison for three days. If that's three consecutive 24-hour periods, after that would be the fourth day, okay? It's an ancient Near Eastern figure of speech referred to uh, three days as any part of three consecutive days. You don't have to have three 24-hour days for that to work. Uh, do this and live, for I fear God. He's been referring to Pharaoh, which is his kind of uh, under the law, his authority, but ultimately he recognizes he's got an uh, allegiance to the Lord here, and he affirms that. So he's actually testifying for his faith in that context. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined. He's This is, was the plan all along, because apparently they're still united, and that's a good sign. Be confined in your prison, but as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine uh, of your households. He wants to make sure they've got enough food to keep dad and the rest of the family alive. And then bring your youngest brother back to me, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. But he said, but then they said, watch this, Steve, because they're talking Hebrew. He's been talking to them through an interpreter, a translator. Uh, he, of course, understands Hebrew, but they don't know that. Look, look what happens here. Then they said to one another, okay, truly we, that's important, are guilty concerning our brother. The thing about Joseph 22 years before when they threw him in the pit, sold him to slavery. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, please don't do this, guys. They'll kill me in Egypt, kind of thing, whatever Joseph said at the time. Yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. You know what? The first step is stop rationalizing, stop redefining, just admit. It's on me. I did it. And I'm going to need God's help to fix it. That's where you start. Any significant change, right? Uh, across the board. So this is big for them to take ownership of their guilt. Because I think to this point, they haven't thought about it very much because it's too painful. But you know, it's his fault. He was flaunting his multicolored shirt or, or, or coat and all that kind of stuff. It was always his fault. Now it's, we did this. It's wrong. And look, here comes the reckoning for this, you know? They did not know, however, that Joseph understood Hebrew. They're talking in Hebrew. He's been speaking to them in Egyptian through a translator. For there was an interpreter between them up to that point. Uh, and he turned to get away from them temporarily and wept. I mean, it's, he's, he's seeing what he's hoping to see, but it's still painful. Because he's picturing, pleading for them not to sell him to the Egyptians. And they're going to work him to death in a coal mine. Or not a coal mine, a <laughs> salt mine real quick. Is what's going to happen 99% of the time. Now, God providentially had different purposes, but it was just too much to take. So he leaves the room temporarily. They don't know what he's doing. And he comes back and he spoke to them. And he took Simeon. Uh, and by the way, I skipped uh, that. You know, I skipped something there. Go back to verse 22. This is important. Uh, we saw it was on us. We didn't listen. This distress had come upon us. Then Reuben, the oldest of the of the brothers, answered them saying, Didn't I tell you don't sin against the boy? Don't, let's not kill him. Now remember, he had said, let's throw him in the pit, not kill him. And then his plan, Reuben's plan was what? When, yeah, when nobody was around, he was going to grab Joseph out of the pit and take him back home to his dad to make points with his dad. Say, hey, the rest of these guys wanted to sell him in slavery or kill him or worse, but I saved his life. So we would not call this a good, good work, Danny. It was a bad, good work, but it saved him. And Reuben's saying, hey, I didn't want to kill him. I I did not want to kill him. Now he had his reasons, and that's important because when Joseph uh, says, here's what we're going to do, he says, uh, I'm going to let Simeon, he, he just acts like, I'm going to pick you. You're the one who stays. Simeon's the second oldest, not Reuben, the first oldest who you'd assume he'd pick. 
But Reuben has kind of a different category there. Okay, so he took Simeon, bound him before their eyes, and then we go from there. Look at what happens. Nine of the uh, ten return home, and dad panics. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, lots of food, so they're going to be okay for a, a good while, and to restore every man's money. They paid for the grain, but they're putting the money, the sale money, back into their bags and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus it was done for them. So he's just as ordering his guys to do that, to set up his brothers there. So Jesse, Joseph is definitely testing, not prosecuting them, and he could. He could just summarily execute them and be no problem, but he's not going to do that. He's looking for change, looking for character change, and he's seeing some good signs here. Verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys uh, with the grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack, to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place. They go all night, and just as it gets dark, they stop at an oasis somewhere, and he's looking at his animal and stuff. He saw his money, the money he had paid for the grain, is in his sack, in the mouth of his sack. And he said, this can't be good. You know, I'm being framed here. They planted this on me. They're going to use this against me. Then he said to his brothers, my money's been returned. Behold, it's in my sack. Yeah? And... Uh, one guy said, one good strategy in living your life is always walk around with two sacks in your hand, and then if you see somebody who needs help, you can say, I'd love to help you, but i got these sacks. I just, when I think of sacks, I think about that. Uh, sorry. Uh, then he said to his brother, my money's been returned. It's in the sack. This doesn't look good. And their hearts sank. They just figured there's got to be an, you know, a malicious mo- motive here. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God's done to us? Don't you love it? You know, it's amazing how people who are happy to put God as far away as comfortable for them and just visit him, you know, on Easter and in ICU situations, take his blessings for granted. But when anything bad happens, it's his fault, you know. But actually, Joseph is testing them here and blessing them. You know, this is super grace. He didn't have to return their money and he's not going to prosecute him for it. Verse 29, when they came to their father Jacob a few days after that in the land of Canaan, again, literary compression, he's not telling you everything he knows, just telling you the story. They told him, dad, all that had happened to them saying, and this is a summary, the man, the man, wow, the guy under the Pharaoh, the guy who's the Lord of the land in charge of the food distribution program, spoke harshly all business with us, but he dealt with us, but he took us for spies. And we said to him, we're honest men, so they were kind of exaggerating, we're not spies, which is true, we're twelve brothers, son of one father, one is no longer alive, Joseph, and the youngest is still home with dad in the land of Canaan. The man, the lord of the land, Joseph, their brother they didn't recognize, said to us, by this I will know that you're honest men about that, you're not spies, you're just here to get food for your family, leave one of your brothers, Simeon, that's the way they left it, with me and take grain for the famine for your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me when you run out of food so you can get some more. And then I'll know that you're not spies, but honest men. I'll give your brother Simeon, the one we're holding in the holding tank, and you may trade in the land and ride out the famine. So that's, that sounds like a pretty good deal, but can they trust him? You know, maybe it's a setup. And Joseph or Jacob, the dad, is not willing to believe this stuff. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack, not just the one guy. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, money, they were what? They were happy? We won the lottery. Free food. Now, the first time in history, 
where people weren't happy with free food. I mean, any other time you get free food, everybody's happy. I mean, I'm just telling you, but free food. Watch this. Now, look at Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being the kingdom. They're going to be, you know, involving, you know, as integral parts in the millennium. Uh, but man, you look at Jacob, and he does a lot of strange things for a believer. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you, that's all y'all, that means the ten brothers, have bereaved me of my children, two of them. Joseph's no more. You guys, you know, interact with Joseph, and he doesn't come back. He's eaten by a wild animal, jo- Jacob thinks. And Simeon, you know, he's totally written off Simeon in the Egyptian trail. We're never going to see him again, you know, forget that. Um, and, and that's not true either, but it's his point of view. The Bible, not everything in the Bible is true, but everything the Bible affirms is true. And that's what Jacob said. He just is writing them off. And now you're going to take Benjamin, who's the apple of his eye. Uh, all these things are against me. And that's kind of saying, like, fate has dealt me a bad hand. So that's kind of a very agnostic kind of a statement there. Interesting. But you don't totalize people. People sometimes say the stuff they don't really mean under pressure. Verse 37, then Reuben, right, uh, spoke to his father saying, I remember Reuben's the oldest one. Uh, you may put my two sons to death, but do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, I'll return him to you. Now, that sounds like a strange thing. I mean, I like Brad Blystone a lot, but if he's in an Egyptian prison, I'm never going to say, you know, uh, Max, let me go on a suicide mission and try to get Brad out, and if I don't come back, you can kill my, you can kill Jamie and Jonathan. Yeah, I think this is uh, hyperbole saying, look, in theory, at least, I'm going to put the welfare of my brother Benjamin over even the welfare of my sons. He's just saying, look, I will do everything in my power to get him back. Okay, we're not going to lose him. If we take him there to show that we're honest about being a family, not a bunch of spies, I'll do everything in my power. And, you know, he doesn't have all power, but that's what he means there. Um And anyway, Jacob doesn't seem that impressed by that offer. I, don't, I, I can't imagine... Uh, as a grandfather wanting to kill my grandchildren under any circumstances, right? But Jacob said, you know, he's not even listening hardly. He's not even letting him dent it, dent his thinking. My son, Benjamin, the little, little, he's now in his thirties, shall not go down with you. For his brother, Joseph, is dead, and he alone is left. We've got more than that. But listen, Jacob had four wives. Rachel was his favorite wife, and she only had two sons. Who were they? Joseph and Benjamin. So they were the favorite ones. Uh, a lot of stuff in the Bible is described, not prescribed. Jacob had favorites. You can't have favorites. If I were to ask you, you know, which one's your favorite, you know, uh, which of your two daughters are your favorite? You, you, would, you don't have a favorite, do you? Um, somebody asked me, who's your favorite son? I'd say, I don't like either one of them. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I like them both the same, you know. Uh, but Jacob didn't do that. So not everything that's described in narrative literature is designed to be a good example. Here, this is a bad example. But yeah, uh, Benjamin's his favorite. And every time he sees Benjamin, he thinks about Joseph, who is really his favorite. And you're already in trouble there. But Benjamin's not going to go down with you. Joseph's dead. Benjamin's the last one of uh, Rachel. And, and Rachel died in childbirth with Benjamin. So when he sees Benjamin, he's looking at his wife, his favorite wife. Yeah, hey, Carlos, you know, all these guys in the Old Testament had multiple wives, so isn't that God's will for us? Uh, those are bad examples, and they all have disastrous family consequences, right? Uh, the first place in the Bible talks about marriage is Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, Ava, Linda, and Bambi, the aerobics instructor, right? 
So uh, this was a bad example, but God probably works through it anyway. But watch this. Uh, if harm should befall Benjamin on that journey, or, you know, worst case, he doesn't come back alive, then you're going to bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. He's saying, if he doesn't come back, it's going to kill me. And, and it probably would have. Now, what's this thing about Sheol? Well, let's, let's think about that. Look at Genesis uh, 35. We always say that death, according to scripture, is not extinction, it's separation. So spiritual death is, is, is relational separation from God. Physical death, according to scripture, Sonia, is the separation of your consciousness from your body. It's the separation of your soul from your body. And going back to the birth of Benjamin by Rachel, Genesis 35, 18, we're talking about a very difficult labor. This is before we had the wonderful facilities like we have at Duncan Regional Hospital to help some of the things that happened. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. I say when you die, your body stops working, but what really happens is your consciousness leaves your body. That she named him Ben-Oni, which means uh, son of my sorrow or my misfortune. Uh, but his father called him Benjamin, which was a more benign term. So Rachel died and was buried on the way Ephrata, that is Bethlehem. So that's death. However, let's talk about Sheol for a minute. When you read the Old Testament, everybody who dies goes to Sheol. Now you guys know the Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before the first coming of Christ, right? There's how they say, by keeping the law, by grace through faith in the promised Savior, right? But everybody in the Old Testament who dies goes to Sheol. But it's more complicated than that. Jesus tells us about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, right there in Luke 16, he talks about when these two guys die, uh, Lazarus goes to paradise, but uh, the rich man who was not a believer goes to torment. Sheol is a collective term for the place of the dead. It has two compartments where human beings can go, or in the Old Testament, all uh, everybody who died goes, their soul goes to Sheol. Unbelievers go to a place called torment. There was a great gulf fixed between those compartments. Believers go to paradise. Because watch this. People believe in the promised Savior of being saved by grace on credit because the payment hadn't been made yet. But the day of the resurrection, you got the resurrection 40 days later, the ascension. The day of the resurrection, when Mary sees the risen Jesus, she grabs him and uh, you know, King James says, touch me not, for I've not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. But the King James is present active imperative with the may, which means stop doing something you're doing. I think she, he let him, let her clutch him for a couple of minutes just to make sure he was there, just as anybody who loves you when they thought you were dead, they grab you for a few minutes. And then he kind of with a smile on his face says, hey, let go of me, you know? I've only got 40 days between now and the ascension. I haven't gone to, I haven't ascended to heaven yet. So, Right after his resurrection, he says he hasn't been to heaven, but right before he dies, he tells the believing thief, really he was a terrorist, what does he say? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in heaven? No. What does he say? Paradise. He goes there. He goes where Abraham was and Jacob are. So, yeah, so everybody dies in the Old Testament and goes to Sheol. Now, what happens now? What does Second Corinthians say? For Roxanne, or for Maxine, or for Debbie McCoy, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Now where's the Lord? Since the ascension, he's in heaven, right? So in connection with the ascension of Christ, everybody in paradise got promoted. 
That's, you, you want a promotion at work? That's the ultimate promotion. But the Old Testament saints went with the Savior they had believed would come, who's made the payment price. Now they go back. And since that point, believers at physical death, their souls are buried, or their the bodies are buried, but their souls got to be with the Lord. Torments are still being filled up, waiting for ultimately the great white throne judgment. But that solves that problem that you see. Everybody's going to Sheol, but obviously you've got believers and unbelievers, and how does that work? But again, you know, you put it in Old Testament context, the cross hasn't happened yet, and so there's some different dynamics there than we have now. So, you know, it's always the gospel. It's the same gospel. It's just more specific as you actually get on this side of the cross. God's offer of salvation providing eternal life because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins, but he's not dead anymore. So let me finish this way. We talked about two wisdom principles. Let me emphasize how Joseph lives these out and how you're going to make your life a lot simpler if you start living these out. And I'm talking to myself too. Number one, Joseph didn't totalize. He didn't take one event, and it was big. The brothers were going to kill him. Then he decided to throw him in the pit and think about it. Then the, some slave traders just happened to come by. Wasn't that lucky, Wendy? Wasn't that lucky the slave traders came by? Man, it was so lucky, right? There's no luck there. It's all providence of God. They sell him into slavery, assuming they're going to work him to death. And, and But they made some money, right? Isn't it weird? You know, first time Egyptian slave traders come by in chapter 37, the brothers make money on that deal, okay? Now they go buy food. They come back with the money in their sacks. They, they made money on the deal. Every time they go to Egypt, they make money on the deal. So it must be a good thing, right? It's interesting the way history repeats itself. Uh, totalizing is when you take one event, even something as terrible as that, one choice, one characteristic of someone or yourself, and see them or see yourself only through that the basis, the lens of that one event. And you know what? As David's one of the world's greatest engineers, he doesn't say that, but I'll say that for him. You know, there's not, you don't have enough data. Lloyd, you don't have enough data to judge somebody based on one thing, especially if it's some stupid thing they did or some painful or just ridiculous thing they did, or maybe some really good thing they did. You know, Um, you might see somebody, it happens in golf. You know, the great thing about golf is, if you hit enough golf balls, eventually you're going to hit one solid. I mean, even the worst golfer eventually hits one solid. That's why they come back. They hope to hit more than one solid. But if you just happen to be driving across a golf course in a golf cart, you might see somebody who's brand new, and the only ball he hit that was airborne the whole day is the one you saw. You say, well, he's pretty good. You should have seen all the ground balls he hit before and after that, you know. So, you know, you just don't have enough data based on one thing, good or bad. And I think a lot of times, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we allow ourselves to be programmed to think about ourselves based on maybe the harshest criticism we did or the worst thing we ever said or did. And, you know, in Christ, we're new creatures, man. If you trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, you've got a standing that is perfectly righteous. That's the way God sees you. And you've got all the potential in the world to become a world-class person. So get with the program. But don't tie yourself down and don't tie a lot of other people down. Um, one thing that can destroy a marriage is take one thing. And let that uh, affect the the entire way you think about the other person in the marriage. And if that was a unique, isolated thing, even if it's a bad thing that's been repented and and changed, I think you've got to look at the, the broader picture. Certainly, Joseph doesn't totalize his brothers. I mean, his brothers basically tried to kill him, and technically he could press charges and execute them on the spot with no problem. He has that power. 
But he chooses not to because he realizes God's in the people-changing business. So something stupid you did in 2009 doesn't necessarily characterize you in 2019, nor vice versa. You know, I remember Buzz Aldrin uh, admitted after he was the second guy to walk on the moon, he said after he got back, I don't think he's a Christian. It's part of the problem, of course. But he said, you know, I built my whole life as a test pilot, a military-decorated pilot, to eventually go on that moon mission. And once I got back, I said, what do I do now? Nothing I will do for the rest of my life, from a pilot's point of view, will be anything like the first moon landing. Are you kidding me? You can't do any better than that. And he went into a a funk for a long time uh, because he kind of totalized himself just based on that. That's the whole thing, right? Um, I've often said... You know, if I knew how much fun it was to be a grandfather, I would have had them first, you know, the grandkids. Um, but, um, and I also said, you know, realizing I'm a grandfather doesn't really freak me out. But realizing I'm married to a grandmother, that does kind of freak me out. So just so you'll know. Uh, but she's heard that joke before. Number two, don't totalize other people or yourself. Number two, don't totally trust yourself either or others, okay? And it's a weird thing, but uh, I have a jar of jelly beans on my desk here, Brad. And if I have any jelly beans in my house and I can't sleep at night in my house, I will find them and I will eat the entire bag. I mean, I, I will. It's bad. I'm admitting my faults here, you know. I don't need a Christian counselor. I get it out here from the pulpit, you know. I mean, there's certain nights I'm just, I'm a carb- carbohydrate addict. Watch me on the plane after 10 hours. <laughs> be fun, you know. Um, but I can have that jar of jelly beans on my desk, and I've totally compartmentalized that. I mean, I, I, will, I won't touch that. That's not for me. That's for the kids and some of the adults. Jack Smith and other people come in for the jelly beans, you know. But I feel like that's fellowship facilitators. It's not really mine. So, But I don't trust myself at home. So basically, uh, we very seldom have jelly beans at my house. We really don't, because Debbie knows if we've got them, I will eventually find them at 2 o'clock in the morning and eat them all. And that's not a good thing, because I'm not suggesting you should do that. But you can't totally trust yourself. And this is why personal accountability is very important. Uh, one reason you need to be plugged into a relational Christian church, if you're a believer, and come more than once every three months, is so that there is just some inherent accountability there. If we only see you every three months, it's hard. We're just happy to see you. But uh, it's very important you have that going for you. Uh, in theory, your spouse ought to be your number one accountability factor, uh, partner. That's my opinion. I'm just going to tell you, as a father and husband, I think the number one job you've got is to disciple your kids. And I think in marriage, uh, your number one accountability partner needs to be your spouse. I mean, why not? You know, you got to be transparent with them, and uh, they'll probably love you whether they realize you got weaknesses or not. But um, yeah, don't totalize yourself. Don't totally trust. Anybody, including yourself. And I think Joseph shows that. He doesn't have these guys summarily executed. On the other hand, he tests them to make sure they haven't killed Benjamin, make sure dad's okay, make sure that they're, they're changed people, uh, and they've had to process their guilt and stuff like that, as we'll see. But they've, God has changed these folks. And so, you know, I always tell James, you know, God cares a lot more about TBF than we do. And God's in the people changing business. So don't stick people in a pigeonhole as if they can never get out, you know, because as long as there's life, there's hope, right? Which is kind of exciting because uh, rather than uh, getting old and uh, just kind of giving up, you, you've got areas of character you can develop, and you've got always got ministry things you can do. If, if nothing else, you can be uh, encouraging and, and pray for people, that kind of thing, okay? So here's the bad news. What's going to happen now, okay? 
is, uh, are the guys going to go get more food and sneak out because dad didn't want them to go? Or are they going to kind of kidnap Benjamin and take him against dad's will? Or are they just going to stay there and starve to death? You know what? You're not going to know for two weeks. You know, you're not going to know what happens. No, actually, uh, you can go ahead and read ahead and feel free. <laughs> read chapter 43. Read the rest of the story if you want to. But next week, uh, James will be speaking the first hour. And then, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll pick up the story in uh, chapter 43. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to trust your prov- prov- providential sovereignty in the events in, in our life. I think we're responsible uh, to take care of the things we can and that you enable us to take care of. And some of us are obsessive about details and we never quite get them all lined up. But ultimately, after we do what you would enable us and allow us to do, we just got to trust you for the details. Uh, we can do so much for our kids to promote uh, good, positive spiritual dynamics, and then they, they belong to you. They make their own choices. Uh, we can do the best we can to get that promotion at work, and sometimes we deserve it and we get it, and sometimes we deserve it and we don't get it. The boss's cousin gets it. But you're not surprised by that. Uh, our disappointments are your appointments. And we've seen Joseph go through so much and never get bummed out and never stop uh, believing and resting in you. And now he's got even maybe a more difficult test. He's got essentially, humanly speaking, uh, unlimited power and unlimited resources. And yet he doesn't totalize his brothers. He, he wants to see if they've changed. And yet he doesn't totally trust them either. And I pray that we could be wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves in that sense. And I, I've got a feeling some people in this congregation are making decisions, are making life choices, and maybe they're being victimized by totalizing something or someone, help them to bring in more of the data. Uh, but also maybe they're too naive and they're too trusting of themselves or of others. And you know, let us be careful uh, in that way, not to, to totally trust anybody or anything but you and to rest in that. We pray that you'd help us to see ways we can apply those principles and make our lives better and be more like what you want us to be in our character. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.